Let's pray together as we prepare to hear God's holy word. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear your word and to receive your word. And let it be to the upbuilding of your church. For it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 122. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls. And security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. While we are not all physically gathered at Covenant this morning, today marks a day for which many of us have greatly anticipated. It marks the beginning of a return to us having the prospect of assembling together weekly for worship. I don't know about all of you, but the thing that I have missed the most in these two months that we have been under this stay-at-home order has been coming to this place every Sunday morning and worshiping with all of you, the saints of the Lord at Covenant Presbyterian Church. In all honesty, there isn't a whole lot else that I have missed during this time. And while I am truly thankful to God that he has provided for us a way to continue to worship together in spirit, I am exceedingly glad that we are this morning able to return to being physically gathered together for corporate worship, even in part. So today is a day of great celebration, for this day is representative that we are ever nearer to the day when all of us together will come together to worship the Lord. And all I kept thinking about these past two weeks was Psalm 122. Verse 1 is uh, a verse that John and I frequently recite at the beginning of worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This verse expresses excitement at the invitation to corporate worship. And if I had to guess, the sweetness of this invitation to gather and to worship together is not lost on us today. Now, even as we shouldn't ever take for granted the opportunity to weekly gather with God's people for worship, the lack of opportunity that we have faced in the midst of this pandemic perhaps has given us reason to stop and to consider what it is about corporate worship that creates in us such a longing, such a desire to gather together to extol the name of the Lord. 
And this psalm provides some answers to why we yearn for regular corporate worship, which I want to get to this morning. But first, it helps to know a little background on this psalm. This psalm is one of the psalms called the Songs of Ascents. It is a diverse group of songs. Uh, psalms. It begins with Psalm 120 and it goes through Psalm 134. These Psalms are thought to have been used by religious pilgrims making their way up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple there. And this pilgrimage was a literal ascent to Jerusalem, but it was also a spiritual ascent upward to God. Hence the title of the Psalms, Song of Ascents. If we were to go back to Psalm 120 and Psalm 121, we would find them giving voice to the ache of living in a foreign land among pagan peoples who do not worship the one true God. And the hope that we have in this God who is our helper and who keeps spiritual sojourners as they make their way to the city of God. And when we make it to Psalm 122, we find the joyous celebration of arriving in Jerusalem, which was at the center of Israel's life as a nation. We remember that under David's rule, Jerusalem became home to both the king's throne and God's throne. After David captured the city from the Jebusites, David's palace was built there. And shortly thereafter, David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city, establishing Jerusalem as the central location of Israel's religion. It was understood that Jerusalem was the place where God resided and was present with his people. The temple, which was erected under Solomon's rule, cemented Jerusalem as the place where God dwelt with his people. So Jerusalem became the place to which every Israelite wanted to go. So people flocked there for the Jewish festivals, to worship in the temple, to have their judicial cases heard, and to seek the king's judgments. The psalm acknowledges all of these things, as well as the Jewish hope for this city. It represented God's reign on earth. And even though it wasn't a place of perfect peace and security, we find in the Bible a longing for these aspects of God's kingdom to come. Those who truly love the Lord longed for a place where they could live under God's almighty reign, where they could find safety from all of their enemies, where they could hide themselves in the shelter of the Most High where perfect justice would flow like a river, where peace would reign, where they could come together as one people in the presence of the one true God to worship him. So this psalm describes the features of Jerusalem that point in this direction, to come up into the city with the droves of other pilgrims who have traveled from north and south, east and west, to see its walls and towers, to see the king's palace, to see the temple, certainly would have touched a very deep place in the pilgrim's heart. And perhaps this is a really bad analogy, and please don't confuse patriotism for true Christian faith. 
But there is something special about being in a place like Washington, D.C. To see the symbols and the monuments and the buildings that point to the ideals of this nation. It's hard to gaze at the Declaration of Independence and to not consider that we are a nation founded on the ideal of liberty from tyranny. It's hard to stand in front of the Supreme Court and not consider that we're a nation founded on the ideal of justice for all or to stand on Capitol Hill and not consider that we are a nation that values the rule of law. But for God's people... Jerusalem held far more significance. It was way more than nationalistic enthusiasm they experienced when they entered into Jerusalem's gates. But how are we to interpret these things in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, we know that we no longer have to go to a holy mountain to worship. No longer do we have to go to Jerusalem or to the temple In his encounter with the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus responds to the woman's comment about the proper place for worship by saying, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He says this because in him and through him, a new error has been ushered in. In light of who Jesus Christ is, the temple and its sacrificial system are no longer necessary. They have been fulfilled and replaced. So we see in the gospel accounts, Jesus redefining the place of the temple. Just two chapters earlier in John's gospel, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The religious leaders scoff at this idea. They reply, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But John clarifies for us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, the temple was where God's spirit resided, where he dwelt with his people. It was where sacrifices were made for the atonement of sins. It was where the great high priest interceded before God on the people's behalf. But in Jesus, we have everything the temple pointed to. He is the one in whom God dwells with his people. He is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the many. He is the great high priest who intercedes before the Father on the people's behalf. And as he promised his followers before the ascension, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit as a gift to all who place their faith in him. Jesus makes his home in all who trust in him which means that his people, his church, become the new temple of God. It is in the church, it is in the church, the followers of Jesus Christ, not in a building, that God's spirit dwells. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in several places in his writings, like in 1 Corinthians 3, where he asks, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. 
But Jesus doesn't just redefine the temple. Jesus also comes announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And he is the king, the one to whom David pointed. So it's with great irony that at his crucifixion, a crown is placed on his head and a sign is mockingly hung over him that read, King of the Jews. They were inadvertently proclaiming the truth. But his reign is not limited to one city or one nation. He rules over all of creation. And his kingdom is evident everywhere his people are. His throne is not just in heaven, but in the hearts of his followers. So in one sense, Jerusalem has totally lost its significance. It is no longer the place identified as the spiritual and political center of God's people. But in another sense, it is still very important. Not the earthly Jerusalem, but the reality to which Jerusalem at its best pointed. The heavenly Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. The one in which all of Israel's hopes are met. The one which John sees in a vision coming down out of heaven from God. And we await that glorious day when Christ comes again and his kingdom is fully inaugurated on earth as it is in heaven. The day in which all those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior will dwell with God in that holy city. And there, in God's presence, will be eternal security. There will be perfect peace and joy and righteousness. But until that day, we, God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, both acknowledge and live into the reality that God's kingdom is already here. And we point to the fullness of the reality of the kingdom that is yet to come. So when we gather together, something very powerful is taking place. The new Jerusalem is shining through. The veil that separates heaven and earth becomes a little more translucent. It's a reminder of the reality to which we belong and the hope to which we strive. It's an opportunity to participate in this heaven reality that is very present and yet remains for us on this side of eternity as though looking through a glass dimly. And worship is at the center of this reality. Because God not only deserves and demands our worship, but he has created us to worship. When we worship God, we are living into our true identity, our true purpose. It is both an opportunity to give glory and honor and praise to God who is worthy of all of our affection and to be transformed, to become who we were meant to be. So even as we don't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship, we gather together for worship nonetheless. And what is happening when we come together as God's people is not something entirely other than what is being described in this psalm. And so we can look to the psalm to provide for us a few reasons why the invitation to corporate worship is a source of such gladness for us. Now, I want to identify three for us this morning for our meditation. These aren't the only three found in Scripture, by the way, but these are the three found in this psalm. So first, 
If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Number one, the invitation to assemble together produces in us joy and excitement because when we gather together for this purpose, God is present with us. When we gather together to worship God, we understand that we gather together in the presence of God Almighty. This is the primary reason why David, who wrote this psalm, is overjoyed at the prospect of worshiping with God's people. This is why the pilgrims were going to Jerusalem. This is why Jerusalem was such a sacred place to the Israelites. It was understood to be where God's spirit dwelt, where he was present with his people. And his spirit resided specifically in the temple where they went to worship him. Now, because we who are in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God is always present with us wherever we go. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. So even while we don't have to go to any one location at any one time to worship God, in really every aspect of our lives should be done as an act of worship, nevertheless, nevertheless, what we need to understand is that God is uniquely present with his people when they gather for corporate worship. There is great stress put on worship throughout Scripture. God is very concerned with our worship. This becomes very apparent as you read through the first five books of the Old Testament. If you can read through the first five books of the Old Testament and not be blown away with the details surrounding how God calls his people to worship him, then you have not been reading very carefully. God ordained that his people worship him corporately. In the Old Testament, there were special times and places for this worship to occur. And even though much changed in terms of corporate worship with the coming of Jesus Christ, we find that the followers of Jesus Christ do not give up gathering together to worship God. It is utterly foreign to the New Testament for believers to think that corporate worship can be laid aside since God now dwells in each of them through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not an idea that comes from Scripture, but from the culture of radical individualism that is our current context. Now, that isn't to downplay the importance of private worship, but it is to stress the importance of corporate worship. Private worship never replaces corporate worship. The churches of the New Testament understood that they together corporately were the temple the dwelling place of God. They understood that no longer did the presence of God reside behind a veil in the temple and have to be guarded by a priest. Jesus had made for them a new and living way into God's presence. He was their priest who ushered them into God's presence and interceded before them. And they were eager to enter into God's presence together. It was where they, as God's people, could come together and offer their sacrifices of praise for all that God had done for them. 
It was where they, as the body of Christ, could come together and be built up and strengthened. It was where the gospel could be proclaimed and the promises of God could be claimed. It was where the collective prayers of the saints could be offered as sweet aroma before the Lord. And so I hope that we don't ever take lightly what we do here. We stand on holy ground. Not because we built a beautiful building and called it a sanctuary, but rather it is holy ground because this is the location that we all come together as God's household, the house of God, which is what the tabernacle and later the temple were and what we now are. Therefore, when we come together in this manner, God is present with us. He dwells with us. He has promised us this. And if we had eyes to see what is truly happening in the spiritual realm when we gather together, if the veil that keeps us from seeing could just be lifted for a moment, we would find ourselves before the throne of God Almighty, just as the Apostle John did on the Lord's Day on Patmos. We would find ourselves with all the saints who have gone before us and surrounded by all the heavenly hosts, bowed before the Lord, offering unceasing praise. What a sacred privilege it is to be in God's presence. It's a privilege that was bought for us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And it's here that we find our life. It's here that we find our purpose. It's here that we're reminded of who we are and whose we are. It's here that we are nourished and energized to live to God's glory. It's here that we are reminded that we dwell secure in the loving presence of Almighty God. So the invitation to come here into God's presence together should be a tremendous source of joy and excitement. Number two, second, the invitation to assemble together for corporate worship should produce in us joy and excitement because when we gather in God's presence, we come before our king and our judge. Israelites were overjoyed to come to Jerusalem because this is where their king was enthroned. This meant that this is where decrees were pronounced and judgment was handed down. They were reminded of this as soon as they entered the gates. The gates were where the cases were decided. They longed to come before their king, to hear from him, to have their cases decided, to be declared righteous. And when we come together as the church, we, just like the religious pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, are not only coming before God to whom we owe our worship, We are also coming to bow before our king and our judge. This is who God has revealed himself to be. And all of our worship must be controlled by and in conformity to God's self-revelation. Therefore, when we come together, we do so submitting ourselves to his rule and his just judgments. We come to hear his word spoken over our lives. Now, instead of being a source of great joy, this could be a source of great fear and trembling. Do we really want to come before the judgment seat of God? 
After all, we worship a God who does not take sin lightly or overlook it. Are any of you worthy? Do you believe you can stand before God's just judgment? So we could come here feeling as though we are sunk. We are men and women of unclean lips, and we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But praise be to God. Our king and our judge is the one in whom we have our redemption. When we gather here, we gather in the name of Jesus Christ and as his people who have been purchased by his blood. We come clothed in his righteousness and we come here to be reminded that God has delivered his verdict against sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that means for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, the penalty of our sin has been fully paid. But it also means that God's enemies will receive his judgment against them. That they will be at the last subdued and defeated. And this is good news for us as we gather as well. A day will come when those who have come against us in our faith in Jesus Christ will answer for their opposition to God and his people. And we will be vindicated. We're reminded of that as we worship. Therefore, we come clinging to the promises of Jesus Christ, excited to come before our king and our judge because the verdict we hear from God is one of justification. God has spoken over us a better word. It's a word of forgiveness. It's a word of peace. It's a word of new life. It's a word of direction in an utterly confused world. His word is truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Dearly beloved, is there a moment, is there a moment in our week better, better than the moment that we get to come together to hear God's word to us? We should be overjoyed at the prospect of corporate worship each week because it means that we come get to sit at the feet of our king and hear his word to us, to feast on his word. It's a break from the noise, the endless noise in the world around us that reminds us that Death and decay are ever around us. Day in and day out, we experience what seems to be a continual flood of babbling, constant chatter that comes from an incessant stream of text and emails, an ever-active, never-sleeping social media, an endless news cycle, commercials that want to convince us that we have no higher purpose than to be consumers. We are bombarded from all angles and told to pick a side, eat this, buy that, live here, drive that, play with this, wear these clothes, vacation there. But here, the outside noise is silenced. And we get to open ourselves to the only word that brings life and joy and peace. It's a word that has the power to transform, to awaken dead hearts and heal broken ones. So why would we not be excited at the invitation to come before our king and our judge? Third and finally, 
The invitation to assemble together for corporate worship should produce in us joy and excitement because it is here as we worship God together that we are bound together through one faith by one spirit in the one true and living God. Jerusalem was a place that all the tribes came together. These were tribes that left to themselves had a tendency to become, well, tribal. And this psalm gives witness to the unity that worship creates within God's people, though. Jerusalem was a city bound firmly together to which tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Outs was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Outside of the city, divisions could arise between the tribes. Worldly differences would separate them one from another. Within the city, they were all one people, though who gathered to worship one God. How much more is it true of the church of Jesus Christ? We are told by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament that all of the worldly divisions that threaten to separate us fall away as we come together in faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So for us... There is neither citizen of Monroe or West Monroe. There is neither Republican or Democrat. There is neither rich nor poor. There is neither MSU nor LSU. None of these things matter. More than we have our differences, we share a similarity. We are members of the body of Christ. As those who have been redeemed by God in Jesus Christ, we are those who God is seeking to come and worship him in spirit and truth. The psalm reveals to us that corporate worship is not simply about coming before the Lord, but it is an opportunity to encounter God's people. As I've already mentioned, worship is a time of building up the body. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his letters, like in Ephesians, where he talks about the gifts given to the body. And what is their purpose for the building up of the body? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he's already said earlier in his letter that the church is the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. The church, in being gathered together, is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, according to Paul. And because unity is such an important aspect of corporate worship, there is a concern here in this psalm, not just of the external forces that come against God's people, but also the internal forces that threaten to create conflict between them. Gathering together to worship God in his presence can create unity in God, but conflict within God's household can threaten to undo this unity on which the church's worship of God and the church's mission in the world rest. This is why the Apostle Paul warns in 1 Corinthians, if anyone destroys God's temple, meaning the church, God will destroy him. And this is why David encourages God's people to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. An encouragement to pray 
for the peace of the church community is a word that I believe we need to hear right now. Our fellowship and thus our worship together as a body can be greatly disrupted if there is not peace among us. And the reality is that at this moment, we are in a time in which there might be great division. We might be divided in our ideas about this pandemic and the steps that need to be taken to mitigate it. Some of you might take a cautious approach while some of you might believe it's a time to get back to life as normal. Dearly beloved, let it not ever be so that these issues would cause division in this body. And not only are we in the middle of a pandemic, but we're in the middle of an election year. I don't need to tell you that the political division is strong in this country. Again, let it never be so that political issues would cause division in this body. This is especially a time in which we need to bear with one another and be gracious and patient with one another. And so I hope that this psalm would remind us that the invitation to worship is a source of joy because it unites us together with our brothers and sisters in Christ even as we are encouraged to pray for peace within this body and within the church universal and to work for its good. When the church prospers as a whole, we all prosper. And not only this, the whole world prospers because God is glorified and shown to be the one who is worthy of all of our praise. You can add this to your prayers for the church that Pastor John encouraged us to be making last Sunday. But in this moment, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that we've had the opportunity to gather together today, that we have shared the sacred privilege of gathering in God's holy presence, bowing before him as our king and our judge, hearing his gracious word to us and being unified in the faith that we share in Jesus Christ. What a reason for rejoicing. And to God, be all glory and dominion and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give you all thanks and praise for this sacred privilege. And Father, I pray in this moment that you would speak your gracious word over us, that you would unite us in faith. Father, we express our longing this day for the day when we all can be gathered together in this place and to worship you. But until that day, Lord, help us, hold us together by your spirit and help us to worship together in spirit and truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe. This morning we are using the Scots Confession. It's a confession that was written in the 16th century by the followers of John Calvin in Scotland. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? We confess and acknowledge one God alone, the moon alone. 